Hello and welcome to the Around the Nation podcast for the week of Monday, September 12th, 2011. I'm Pat Coleman. And I'm Keith McMillan. And we're going to run through the uh, action of week two of the 2011 Division Three football season. A week in which, you know, frankly, Keith, it looked like we might be edging a little bit closer to uh, purple on purple for the uh, seventh consecutive stag bowl. But I, I would say that, uh, you know, it, it's too early in the season to really say that. In a lot of cases, it's too soon to panic. Well, it's certainly too soon to panic, and as long as we have the uh, automatic qualifier system, there's going to be an opportunity for teams who lose early in the season, to, you know, to get back in the playoff hunt by winning their conference. Uh, and, and then there's, you know, there, there's teams like Wesley, of course, who will have to do it through Pool B, but have that have the track record of of losing an early season game and running through the rest of their schedule and uh, and getting in the playoffs and and having some success there. So it's certainly too soon to panic, but I think. If anything, we learned in week two, there's is is we learned that there's still a gap between number one and number two, and then the rest of us in Division three. Right. I mean, the the two teams that, for example, uh, that played Whitewater late in the playoffs, so the quarterfinals and the semifinals, uh, North Central and Wesley, uh, have each lost each of the past two weeks, and and I know those were teams that I, I think a lot of fans who want to see someone step up and challenge Whitewater and Mount Union uh, thought that one of these teams might be the ones to do it. You know, and, and it, it is a little early to say it, it's impossible for it to happen and, and to give up on, uh, on on watching the rest of the season uh, if that's something that you're looking forward to, happen to happening one year here. But, um, yeah, to have those two teams lose, you know, they need they need to bounce back and get it together pretty quickly here. And, uh, you know, we, we saw signs of that this week um, from, from North Central. Certainly didn't take too kindly to losing in week one. Got back on the right track against Bethel of Tennessee. Uh, scoring 70 points this week. So, you know, it, it's still there, I think, in some of those top five, te- you know, top five uh, or, you know, the group of five or 10 teams that that hangs around the the, the top five. Um, you know, the, the, I think what we've always believed is that if a team gets in the playoffs and they're they're, they're they stay healthy, they're playing well and they get a chance against Mount Union and Whitewater that they need to uh, they need to play their best football at that point, you know, not give away. Uh, free points and through turnovers and that sort of thing. But, you know, we've seen it through the course of this six year run where we've had the same champions where teams are in the game in the fourth quarter and they just haven't been able to finish. So it, as long as the team can get back to that position, you know, it's certainly possible. So Wesley loses to Kane 31-28. And, and for those of you who are hearing Kane's name pronounced for the first time, that is how uh, the, the former governor Kane pronounced his last name. And oddly enough, that's how the school named after him pronounces its name as well. K-E-A-N is pronounced Kane, not to be confused with Keene State in New Hampshire. Um, but, uh, you know, so Wesley, you mentioned Keith has done this before. They lost uh, in uh, uh, in 2007, they lost a game in week four to Montclair State. And then they came back and uh and, and made it to the uh, national quarterfinals that year. The year uh, after that, 2008, uh, the opening game at Christopher Newport was uh, Tropical Stormed Out, and then they uh, lost a, uh, a close game at Delaware Valley before uh, coming back to run the rest of the uh, regular season table as well and make the playoffs that year. Yeah, the, the thing about Wesley, obviously, is that um, this year they have even fewer uh, Division three opponents on their schedule, perhaps than normal. Uh, you know, they've played two of them already, and they only have four to go: Husson, Frostburg State, Salisbury, and Huntington. The good news is that uh, those last two on the list are are uh, likely to really help their strength of schedule when it gets to that. Yeah, especially if you consider that Salisbury now a member of the Empire Eight is going to have uh, 
what what looks like a tougher schedule. And, and again, Wesley now playing as an independent. There's no more um, Atlantic Central Football Conference for either Salisbury or Wesley to get you know at least a few games on their schedule. So um, so yeah. So now Wesley has had to go play this barnstorming schedule where they could they anyone that will play them they have to take that game. And uh, you're right, it's going to leave them when, when playoff time comes around with you know at best I guess a five and one. Uh, you know, in region division three record. And, um, but, but I think at the same time, we've seen in the past few seasons where um, the, the committee has, has sometimes make it made exceptions to rules when it, when it feels like common sense is at play here. But I think it's also fair to say that Wesley doesn't have an automatic spot in the playoffs that they have to really play well uh, in, in their few opportunities to impress against division three opponents uh, going here down the line. You know, one thing that stood out to me, too, in, in, in Pat, you know, you mentioned that, that history of losing an early season game that, that Wesley's had, and, and they've been able to, you know, lose early, win, win the rest of their schedule, get back in the playoffs. But those two seasons where they did lose, uh, you know, uh, to Delaware Valley and to, uh, to Montclair State, they, they got back to the playoffs, but those were seasons where they ultimately didn't make it back to the semifinals. They lost to, uh, to Mary Harden Baylor both those seasons. Right. The teams that... Um you know that we're going to be suggesting not panic because the automatic bid is still in their reach that's the thing uh a high seed is probably not as not as likely in, in almost all of these cases uh you you still have a a shot at winning your conference and getting an automatic bid but you're going to be looking at more like a 4 or a 5 seed you might get a first round home game but then you're going to be getting uh significantly less favorable matchups as the uh, as the bracket goes on so for wesley um I guess the question for for me is, uh, you know, Kane passes uh, passes for 259 yards on them. I I think we thought that the Wesley defense was uh, supposed to continue to be pretty good this season, and that the offense was going to be the struggle. Yeah, and, and and to be honest, you know, it was surprising to see you know Kane surged this early 17-6 uh, lead, had a block punt return for a touchdown, and sometimes that happens. You, you know, when when uh, when one of our national dominant teams is playing, somebody gets in. You know, has a turnover, a quick score, and, and builds a little bit of a lead. But it's hard to sustain that level of play against one of these great teams for 60 minutes. And when Wesley came back with the uh, 73-yard touchdown pass in the third quarter from uh, from Shane McSweeney to Matt Barilli to take that 21-17 lead, I felt like it was a little bit of, uh, all right, you know, here's Wesley. You know, they, they, they got over that first initial scare, and now they're going to start pulling away again. And then they gave up a 50-yard touchdown pass to Lester Smith from Tom D'Ambrisi in the fourth quarter, Wesley, you know, to go down 24-7. Then they came back and, and took the lead again, and then they gave up uh, a score to, to Kane on a nine-play, 60-yard drive, with uh, and Kane scored with a minute 18 left. So Kane really uh, earned the victory. There was nothing fluky about it. They scored twice in the fourth quarter, and uh, each time Wesley came back and took the lead, you know, Kane came back and finished it off. And, and I think in these games where we, where we see a team, you know, like uh, UW Oshkosh trying to play Mount Union, the score sometimes looks close early, but the dominant team starts to pull away over the course of four quarters, and that really never happened uh, in the Wesley Kane matchup. Uh, the one thing you can't look uh, blame it on is uh, rust from Shane McSweeney. Remember, he missed almost all of last season last year because of injury, but he was 23 of 34 passing for 311 yards, four touchdowns, no interceptions, and then he also carried the ball 18 times for 77 yards. Uh, so not too early necessarily for Wesley to panic. Um, how about St. John's? Uh, I, the, 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 the second quarter and the first quarter just kind of kept piling up on the Johnnies uh, and, and UW Eau Claire went into Clement Stadium and, and put up 30, 34 points in the first half and led 34 nothing at the break. 
Yeah, and, and it was something where if you were following the tweets, if you were following our, our live chat on Saturday, uh, you know, you saw people from St. John saying, I'm not staying for the second half. And that's, you know, as rare as anything. You know, Clement stayed in one of the great atmospheres in, in Division Three, and, and Wisconsin Eau Claire and St. John's over the years really have had a, uh, as far as a non-conference rivalry go, you know, uh, up there in, in that part of the Midwest, probably one of the, one of the great history of, of having tight finishes, you know, and, and, and this one it, it was nothing tight about it. It was, uh, like you mentioned, Pat, 31-0 in the first half, um, and, uh, and 47-19 was the final. And, and it, it was just hard for us to, you know, see what, where it went wrong, I think, for St. John's. You know, Wisconsin-Eau Claire didn't, didn't look particularly impressive in week one, but came in on Saturday, had a real balanced offensive attack, you know, with the uh, 242 passing yards, 222 rushing yards, dominated the time of possession uh, with, the, uh, with, with uh, 37 minutes uh, and, and, uh, and a little more. Um, for St. John's, you know, they do have the, the, the Mayak slate ahead, but they got at least two really tough games in that conference. And, uh, you know, maybe a third or fourth, depending on, uh, on who emerges. So it's a little early to panic, but they have to get it figured out quickly. I think the thing they really have to get figured out is the quarterback situation. They keep kind of going back and forth, uh, after, uh, you know, graduating their, their boil at quarterback last season, uh, between John Reese, Connor Bruns, uh, I, I don't know where they're going and they probably need to figure out where they're going as well. Yeah, and, and there there's time for that, you know, in these non-conference games, but there's not much time, you know, and especially in the in the case of St. John's, again, you know, that that Mayak schedule, it's not like, say, Washington and Jefferson in, in the President's Athletic Conference where they, they have one big game coming, you know, really they got to beat Thomas Moore, you know, or, or there's other conferences where one team, they have that game late in October, maybe early in November. If they win that game, they feel like they can win the conference. That's not the case in, in the MIAC. They're going to have, they're going to have to win and, and really be consistently good every week. And, and they do have to get it figured out offensively pretty soon here. The, uh, the one, uh, it's, it's hard to call it a bright spot or anything that you can uh, take away from it for, from being a Johnny fan. Cause it's not going to make up for, uh, for four touchdowns worth of uh, of score differential, but uh, Jake Redding was not in the uh, was not in the game Saturday. He's uh, of course one of the leading Johnny running backs. So uh, if if he gets back and gets healthy, that can certainly help them out. And, and as Keith said, the entire conference schedule is still ahead of him. Uh, too early to panic for Co. Co. Um, you know, lost an understandable game, I guess, at Harden Simmons last week after a a seventeen hour bus drive and uh, taking on a a top team on its uh, on its home on its home field in in hot weather. Now you're playing a team that's lost eighteen games in a row, and uh, you end up losing in overtime. Yeah, I wonder if in Co's case, maybe it's a little bit of uh, of having of getting so geared up for that week one opponent and then having to turn around and play Olivet Nazarene. You know, a team they don't have a, a long traditional rivalry with, a team that that you know had hasn't had a lot of success of late. You know, as a player, when you practice, you know who you're playing that week, and, and you know it's not hard for for a co to get up for uh, for the Warburg game or for the Central game game like that. In, in this case, you know, I wonder if, if that played a little bit of a role in, into them not performing so well on Saturday. On the other hand, you turn around, and you look at the stats. You know, they rolled up 434 yards of offense. So, so it wasn't like they, uh, at least offensively, they, they weren't having trouble moving the ball. They just had trouble converting it into points. They went into overtime uh, tied at 10 and uh, were being aggressive in overtime and then had a 92-yard interception return in the game. Certainly a brutal way to lose, but uh, again, it is too early to panic. They do have a chance to still win their conference, get in the playoffs, 
and and have their season be everything they want it to be. Yeah, for Brad Boyle, this is a guy who's who's been the everyday starter for them uh, for uh, for the past. Uh, this is this is his senior year. Uh, his his entire sophomore year, he threw one interception. He threw six interceptions last year, and he's thrown seven here in the uh, in the first two games combined. As as many as he threw his uh, entire sophomore and junior years combined. Yeah, and, and in the case of Brad Boyle, you know, someone who was named the preseason All American for us, you know, he's got to be careful not to let his his senior season, the season he hoped to be, you know, probably the best of of all the ones he started. Um, he's got to be careful not to let that get away from him. And uh, the, the turnovers, you know, you, you as a quarterback, you go through bad stretches. And, and you know, I think his, his guys will probably uh, pick him up a little bit here. And, and um, they got to rally around him a little bit. They really do. And, and, and it, you know, he's not the reason they lost the game on Saturday, but certainly the five turnovers hurt. And uh, he he's probably can still be that same guy who, who doesn't throw, you know, a lot of interceptions and, uh, and and doesn't put the team in bad position with a lot of turnovers. But he's got to be careful not to put too much pressure on himself to not be that guy and get away from 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 what they've done so well successfully earlier these past few seasons. The uh, the Wyack has been really interesting here in the in the first couple of weeks, Keith. Um, you know, you could almost really lump Wisconsin Lacrosse, for example, into this too soon to panic. You know, because all they've done is uh, lost. One very competitive game and one semi-competitive game to uh, the number one and number three teams in the country, and then um, and then Platteville, who I saw uh, in in week one, uh, goes to goes to Stevens Point and basically shuts them down, beats them twenty six to three in a non-conference game. This is the the Wyack office mandated uh, cost cutting uh, game, but uh, you know still uh, that that's a that's a for two teams that are two and zero and zero and two respectively, um, you know, they're, uh, the standings are going to say one thing, but uh, the rankings are saying something else. And I think those teams are are still both fairly decent. Well, Pat, you touched on what makes the whole thing really interesting is that you have these WAC teams who who've played each other already in in you know Whitewater and Lacrosse, um, you know Platteville and Stevens Point, and yet those results don't because they're quote unquote non-conference games, those results don't impact, um, you know, each team chasing the playoff bid. You know, obviously somebody would have to beat Whitewater during, during the course of the season to win the conference. And, uh, you know, that's not necessarily something that's likely, but that's, that's still in front of, uh, of, of lacrosse, for example, uh, a team that didn't really look all that bad against Whitewater in, in week one, Pat, you, you know, you saw it uh, much more closely from, from up close, uh, a lot more closely than I did, but, um, there's a, there's a number of teams, and there always is in in, in the WAC who who feel like they can chase a playoff bid. But but now you know in the case of of lacrosse, I thought they they would look worse. Really, to be quite honest with you, in, in these first two games, they may have actually you know even by losing been able to gain a little bit of confidence to know that they can hang with a, a Mary Harden Baylor and that they can hang with a Whitewater. Right, because even if you know they were eventually they were out of the game against Whitewater, but they were uh, they were pretty good defensively in the red zone. They did manage to hold Whitewater to field goals. Um, and you certainly can't beat Whitewater by allowing them to score touchdowns every time down the field. Um, they had a they had a fairly decent run game, um, so they had they had that going for them. Uh, and then you know for uh, for Platteville, uh, Platteville's got a uh, has a, a game at home against Wheaton, and then uh, and then Platteville and Lacrosse face each other to start the Wyack schedule. Yeah, Pat, and and I think now those those two games. 
you know, weren't necessarily games that we circled at the beginning of the season saying th- those are going to be huge tilts, you know, but all of a sudden now we're going to keep our eyes on, on Platteville and Wheaton and then Platteville and lacrosse. And the WIAC has this tendency to sort of over the course of the season rewrite its own story a couple times. So we may be looking at Platteville uh, as a team that could threaten right now. And then two weeks from now, you know, it, it could be someone else. We, we thought it would be Stevens Point, but I think after two weeks, you know, even though they're one and one to have only scored 11 points total sort of takes a little bit of the uh, focus off of them. Yeah, it, it's it's going to be a struggle to start off at home. Uh, have your home opener and score only three points against Platteville, a team which is, you know, they were five and five last year. They were three and four in the conference, and that's, you know, about as good as it gets for a uh, for Platteville over the course of the past decade. They have had one six and four overall season, but in the past, uh, in the past ten years, they've never won more than than three Wyatt games. So, uh, for 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 them to go into Stevens Point and just you know frankly on the scoreboard manhandle them is a uh, a bit of a, a wake up call both for Stevens Point uh, f- first of all that they have to figure some stuff out before they get uh, into the into their conference schedule and for everybody else that um, if if you thought that if there's anybody in the conference that thought that anybody else in the conference was an easy win uh, and that sa- statement is debatable to begin with um, but certainly Platteville's not going to be one of them. Not not anymore. And and if we've learned really, I guess anything over these these first two weeks is is that, you know, what we thought was going to happen isn't necessarily going to happen. And there there's you know that's always the case, uh, you know, in in football, whether it's pro football or whether it's uh, it's us in Division Three. But it's it's seems to be happening more quickly this year that that everybody is sort of rewriting their own tale. You know, we didn't we didn't expect North Central and Wesley to lose this early. We didn't expect. Um, you know, the, the WIAC to turn over itself so quickly. And, and really, one of the few things that, that has pretty much stayed the same is just Whitewater being pretty dominant and Mount Union being pretty dominant. They had a couple of matchups this week that we thought uh, may, may test them a little bit, and it turned out that really wasn't the case. No, uh, and uh, uh, Whitewater goes down to Franklin and, you know, maybe a bit slow getting started, but not slow finishing uh, in a, a 45 to nothing win. I know Whitewater punted a couple times in the first quarter, but then they uh, poured on 28 points in the second quarter, and it was pretty much all over at that point. Yeah, and, and you know, we had a, we had a couple of guys there, you know, live tweeting and uh, and and um, giving us their their take on on the game, and it, it's really amazing to see you know a program like Franklin, which would give. You know, ninety percent of of D three would they would they would give them a really tough game. They would give them problems. You know, they they've become uh, no matter who's at quarterback, uh, a real efficient passing attack, and they they're sort of one of those teams from from a you know regular conference. I, I'd like to say that's trying to make that move into being uh, able to compete year in and year out on a national level. And and just when you get against Whitewater, you know they're so good, uh, really up front, offensive line, defensive line that they 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 take a good-looking team and make them look, you know, less than mediocre. It doesn't get any easier for Franklin next year and the year after they have a home-and-home home with Mount Union coming up. I think the, the telling sign, uh, again, is um, uh, how Lavelle Coppage has been used here, the uh, the Whitewater running back the first two weeks. He did not, uh, didn't play in the fourth quarter against Lacrosse, didn't play in the second half against Franklin after he went uh, 18 carries for 119 yards in the first half. Uh, I know that, um, you know, the, a, a Every coach obviously would rather win a national championship than uh, than have a kid uh, get a record. But uh, it, it, for Lavelle Coppage, 
the 2,600 yards that he would have needed to uh, to be the all-time leading rusher in uh, collegiate football history was a bit of a stretch to begin with and even more remote now after the first couple weeks. I guess what's even more surprising is that last year you thought was the year where they had the stable of backs. They had Antoine Anderson and Booker Stanley to go with Coppage, and they, they rode Coppage all the way to the national championship. So you thought uh, if, if any year he wasn't going to get the carries and, the, and the, the full attention, you know that would be the time. But by the same token, uh, if you're Whitewater and you, you know you're going to need some uh, a player to be healthy for 14 or 15 games, you may not want to overwork him early in the season. And this is your time really to find out who the other running back is going to be because you know the guy who was their uh, who was their best remaining uh, guy returning because uh, you know Anderson and um, and Stanley both uh, were seniors last year. Uh, they're so they're back down to almost square one after Coppage. Uh, Desmond Ward had a had a uh, had a great game running on uh, on Saturday. He had 17 carries for 71 yards. Uh, Byron Stanford, uh, who I saw a little bit against Lacrosse, and I thought uh, had some showed some promise. He had five carries for 25 yards. So they're getting uh, a lot of other a lot of other running backs some work. You know, Coppage carried the ball 18 times, but uh, you know that is less than half of Whitewater's total on the afternoon. You know, over at, at Mount Union, they don't have they don't have this problem this year. You know, trying to figure out who who the guy is going to be in the backfield. You know, they lost their their offensive star in uh, in Cecil Shorts, who's you know now playing on Sundays. Um, Jeremy Murray is the guy. You know, twenty carries, one hundred twenty five yards, six point two yards per carry on Saturday against uh, Wisconsin Oshkosh. You know, certain that's the going to be the, the main running back, and and that's a probably encouraging. Uh, as encouraging a week one as you could have, you know, in, in your backfield. But uh, switching quarterbacks, I, I think they they're looking right now. Is Neil Seaman the guy, or or is Matt Pilato going to be the guy at quarterback? Yeah, and you know, Pilato got into the game as early as the uh, as early as the second quarter. Uh, yeah, I think that you know, remember how of course how last year's Stag Bowl was played with uh, the backup quarterbacks for both teams. Um, you know, Pilato being a guy who hadn't necessarily gotten a whole lot of work over the course of the regular season, uh, it seems clear that the, that's not going to be the case this year. Yeah, I mean, he's got really all the tools. I mean, he's six six, throws a good deep ball. We saw that in the Stag Bowl, and sometimes with the case of the, of of these these programs, you know, they're so they're so loaded. Right. And we we've been to this Stag Bowl enough times where you know you get to chat with with the with the guys who follow the team really closely. And they say, "Hey, wait till you see this quarterback next year." And, and uh, some years they some years they're really great, some years they're not. But I, I think Pilato fits in that category of a guy. So they're really excited to to see him play, and he may at some point during this season eclipse Neil Seaman if Seaman doesn't, you know, really get a grip on the the starting position and, and assert himself. Uh, elsewhere, you know, we we touched on North Central a couple times, but I think we really need to talk about that game too. Uh, uh, you know, North Central. <laughs> um, just uh, we talked about the big second quarter for Whitewater. North Central had a, a perhaps an even, even crazier one where they scored five times, all of them on offense, uh, and, and none of them in possessions. It took even two minutes. Yeah, short drives. You know, two play drive, three play drive. Uh, obviously, got themselves set up with short fields. What it said to me, besides the fact that you know North Central has the the potential to be explosive and, and to be dominant, and you know, with a thirty five point second quarter, but it really. Oh, it said they didn't they didn't take that that week one loss out of Redlands too well and that they obviously went back to work uh, and uh, they may be on a rampage for a while here. I mean, if just judging by by uh, 
um, Saturday, you know, because that 70 points that they put up, if you see how quickly they put it up, you know, again, two play drives, you know, we looked at that, that second half where they had five offensive possessions, scored five touchdowns, didn't take them longer than a minute 55 for any of those drives. Uh, that game may not have been as close as it looked. And, and, and when a team scores 70, it's, it's re- remarkable to say that. Just think of the comparisons between te- these four teams I'm going to throw out here now. North Central, uh, Bethel, Tennessee, Wisconsin-Eau Claire, and St. John's, who have all played each other here in the first two weeks. Yeah, you don't, it's a dangerous game to play that comparative scores, but it, if you go down the line, you're right. Uh, North Central crushed Bethel. Bethel beat Wisconsin-Eau Claire. Wisconsin-Eau Claire crushed St. John's. So, so does that mean how it, would it be a ridiculous score between uh, North Central and St. John's? You know, it's, it's obviously uh, hard to say, but uh, that, that's what you get, I think, or that's what we've gotten so far in week, weeks one and weeks two, things that don't necessarily match up. And, and it makes kind of tough on us when we go on, on Sunday after we see Saturday's results to go do that, the, the, the top 25 ballot because you got your, your Whitewater, your Mountain Union, one and two. And 19 people have Whitewater number one, six people have Mountain Union number one. And then after that, who do you fill in at that, at that number three spot? There's, there's clearly a, a bit of dissension there because when you look at the, the, um, the spread between the teams in the poll, you know, Mary Harden Baylor came in at number three this week, but with 548 points. And then you have St. Thomas right behind uh, at, uh, with 532 and Bethel. Uh, at 525 and I think to me personally Bethel might be the team that stands out so far but they haven't played quite the quality of teams that Mary Harden Baylor or uh, or St. Thomas has played so far and for those of you who are wondering our top 25 poll is pretty much like everybody else's uh, you get 25 points for being in the number one spot on somebody's ballot 24 points for being in the second place spot 23 for third all the way down to uh, one point for 25th so that's where the point totals come from but the you know you, you uh I, I caution people not to get too hung up on where your individual ranking goes from week to week because there are so many other things that go on around you. You can't just look at your own ranking in a vacuum. If you were, uh, <clears throat> for example, a Wabash or a Wittenberg fan this week, you probably be uh, your your knee jerk reaction is to be pretty upset that each of them, each of those two teams, lost two spots in the poll. But that's because. Uh, Kane jumped up above them. There was a lot of uh, there was there was uh, some. Some movement around them. Cal Lutheran dropped into their vicinity in the poll, so that means there are some ballots where Cal Lutheran is higher than those two teams, and somewhere it's not. Uh, Redlands continued to rise, uh, continuing to get a bounce off of last week's win against North Central, especially because of the way that North Central came back with such a vengeance this week. Um, so you really, I, it's it's better to look at the point total from week to week and, and sort of see where you stand. And also, <clears throat> you can look at the point total and see where the big gaps are. Uh, you know, someone tweeted on uh, on Saturday uh, that Thomas More must be overrated because they're in the top ten, and that isn't necessarily the case. Uh, you know, there's uh, it it could just be that there are seven or eight really good teams in Division three, and then there's a big drop off, and you can see uh, the the gap between uh, number eight, Harden Simmons, and number nine, Thomas Moore, is actually, if I could do my math, is 68 points, which is the equivalent of almost three spots, average spots on a ballot. And I think that that's where I get early in the season. I try not to stay married to my, my ballot the week before, you know, so early. When you, when you get into week eight and you have eight pieces of data to judge a team by one game, uh, doesn't, doesn't skew that data so much. But early in the season, you know, if you only have two games to look at, 
you know, a, one kind of questionable game or one tight result really does skew the data. You know, for me, uh, Wabash was one of those teams this week that won, but but looked like it struggled to win a little bit, you know, to beat Worcester. And then uh, Wartburg was another one, struggled to beat uh, Gustavus Adolphus. Uh, they won 26-21. So you, you, I don't want to get, you don't want to get in the business of penalizing teams that win, but at the same time, you're looking at other teams that were really impressive that maybe were in the, you know, started a little below them. And I don't want to get myself into a situation, at least on my ballot, where I just stick to what I did last week. You know, if the team really looks a lot better, uh, you know, you, you move, you move them up. And I think in the case, you know, with some of these early upsets that we've had, you know, I didn't start with Redlands on my ballot. I didn't start with Kane on my ballot, but they're both uh, in there this week at a pretty high spot. And the good news with that is it'll correct itself at some point down the line. Kane plays Cortland State this week coming coming up here. I know the the Redlands um, usually has has a real early clash, you know, in in Skyac, you know, right there at the beginning of October. And so th- those those results, if they look wrong to somebody, you know, if you're looking at the top twenty five and you and you think your team is underranked, you know, those things correct themselves over the course of the season too. So uh, it's keeping with the theme of the podcast. Too early to panic. And I would say that um, this I, this probably happens more for me in, in basketball in, on D3Hoops.com Top 25, but there are times where I'll look at a team and I'll think, well, you know, I, I also look forward the next week or two weeks on the schedule and say, well, they've, they've got this big game coming up in a couple weeks. I'm just going to hold on to them and see see how they do then. And then... You know, if they perform, if they if they win that big game in a couple of weeks, I'll give them you know whatever reward I might have been holding back the week before or something like that. Yeah, and that's totally totally fair way to look at it. The um, I, I wanted to talk about a couple of teams that kind of roared their way into the poll this week. Um, you know, the the way that uh, that Hampton Sydney was just so dominant offensively in that uh, in that win against North Carolina Wesleyan. Um, Dominant off on offense, and then they only gave up 17 points uh, to the battling bishops as well. It, it, it's it's often been the case with Hampton Sydney that you know so many of the best athletes are, are, are and players are put on offense, and the defense kind of struggles. But so far, they're uh, they've seemed to be uh, pretty good on both sides. Yeah, that was really the question with, with Hampton Sydney over the course of the past you know maybe five years. Even is they they definitely had the offense. They have the the offensive mastermind, so to speak, uh, as a head coach and. They weren't. They never had trouble scoring points, and and then uh, well, they did have that that one playoff game against Johns Hopkins where they they got shut down. But you know, the case would really be offense was never a problem for them. Defense was was the problem. And so last year they, they sort of stacked up the defense. Finally had a, a really strong defense and going into the playoffs, and then they graduated all those guys. So so this year kind of came in wondering were they going to be able to stop teams, and so far. Yeah, that their results, I believe, 63-9 and 56-17 shows that they're proficient on offense and proficient on defense. I I actually had them in the poll uh, in the teens to start the season, and I I feel like they've justified it so far. But it takes, you know, it takes some 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 time. They're going to they'll get some tests uh, as they get into that ODAC schedule, because uh, right now looks like everybody in the ODAC is off to a good start. (laughs) Yeah, the ODAC is only a 13 and one, I believe, overall as a conference. Uh, with uh, Guilford's loss to Methodist being the uh, the only defeat, and and you know uh, as as I think you and I have discussed certainly, um, you know the the ODAC hasn't necessarily been playing world beaters in in the course of racking up those records, and they've been successful in in recent past, but they are at least dominating the conferences around them. Uh, they've typically run up uh, a big advantage against the USA South. Um, and they've been uh, fairly competitive against the Centennial, and they've had success against the Centennial this year as well. 
Yeah, I mean, they're, they're playing what would you would consider to be their natural regional rivals. And, uh, yeah, they beat who they're supposed to beat. It's true that the ODAC, you know, has, has some years been capable of, of sending a team deep into the playoffs. Some years gets knocked out in the first round. But, but, uh, yeah, they, you know, as long as you, as a voter, if you're seeing, if you're seeing teams beat who they're supposed to beat, you know, then you give them the respect they, you think they deserve for that. Salisbury got off to a uh, its its uh, first game in the Empire Eight, uh, and they handled Ithaca pretty well. I think the thing with the with Salisbury and the Empire Eight, and perhaps the Empire Eight as a whole this year, is how travel is going to affect them. Ithaca obviously had to make a pretty long trip to get down to uh, the eastern shore of Maryland, and, and Salisbury is going to have to get on a bus at some point to, if it wants to win the conference as well. Yeah, and and that's a big deal for for these teams, especially the Empire Eight teams, who you know have, have mostly been kept in this in this pocket in upstate New York. Now you add the two Maryland teams in there, you know, maintain the automatic bid. So at least the, the conference winner gets in the playoffs automatically. Um, but the price of that is going to be a lot of travel for these teams. You know, the, the thing I, I thought um, about Salisbury, and I actually got a chance to tune into to a good bit of that game in, in the first quarter, first half uh, on, on Saturday was, um, you know, how, how, how effective that triple option offense would be because Normally, that's Salisbury's advantage. You have defenses who prepare for the spread every week. Then they get to Salisbury on their schedule, and they have you know three or four practices to try to learn how to stop the offense. But that's not the case in the Empire Eight because everybody in the Empire Eight plays Springfield all all year, you know, every single year, and and that's you know one of the best uh, triple option teams in the country. They've been dedicated to it for as long as we've been dedicated to the site and, and longer. So uh, stopping the triple option is not anything new. To, uh, to to Empire Eight teams and and to see Salisbury uh, be able to establish itself offensively uh, in the early going against Ithaca was I think an encouraging sign for for them and and their, you know the Gulls fans because um, it, it's going to be a, a rough go in the Empire Eight this year because there's we think maybe five teams that could really you know have a shot at winning the conference title. I know that Ithaca's had success against the uh, against Springfield in the past, but I think almost all of it has been at home on grass. Uh, Ithaca, I believe, has struggled pretty much every time that they've gone to play Springfield on turf, and then has has had a lot of success at home. I'm looking at uh, 2008, uh, in which uh, Ithaca beat Salisbury 37 to eight at Ithaca last year. They beat uh, Ithaca beat Springfield 23 to 14. It, there are to be honest with you, I guess they're almost they're their grass is really pretty rare at this point. Yeah, it's definitely turned over the the past ten years. You know, I, my last season playing was '97, and I didn't play a game my career on on turf. Now you travel around, and almost everybody has the you know one of the new kinds of turf, whether it be field turf or one of the other name brands. Um, you know, a lot of teams have switched over to it. it it's 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 funny that. Now, when you look at the Empire Eight as a whole, you know we're going to judge X's and O's, uh, you, you know. But you also have this mix uh, of a lot of different things. You got you had state school, private schools in the conference. You have um, you know turf and grass, and you have this travel factor that's going to make all these games so 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 many so interesting because there's so many variables variables beyond okay, is, is this team healthy or does this team have all its you know all its talent this week. And remember, of course, that Springfield is leaving the Empire Eight, uh, and Buffalo State will be replacing it as that uh, shuffle continues. Um, Keith, are we up to the lightning round, or we have more to go? I, I think I think we should shoot right into it. There's a, there's you know on any given week, 
over 100 games in Division Three, and, and we can't mention them all on the podcast, but there's some that, that you can't go without mentioning. Like Stevenson-Christopher Newport, for example. This is a, a game, and, and you just you just wrote this past week that, uh, you know, quoting uh, Paul Barnes from Shenandoah, thinking that, uh, Christ- or that Shenandoah, that Stevenson was going to win a game this year. I think we predicted them actually to win two games in the uh, in the in in kickoff. Uh, I'm just not sure that we predicted them necessarily to be Christopher Newport this early in the season. Yeah, I'll be honest. I didn't I didn't see it happening against Christopher Newport. I thought it'd be further down the line uh, later in the season against you know, some of the bottom level teams in the MAC. And uh, you know, from week one, it looked like Stevenson had some talent. You know, they had a real nice linebacker, they had a nice quarterback that, that could throw the ball, a couple nice receivers. And a lot, a lot of enthusiasm, big roster. So, you know, there's competition going on for spots in those practices. But um, they, they really they got blown out by Shenandoah. There's no other other way to say it. They, they have the talent, but it, it looked like it was going to take them four or five or six games to put it together. And, and they just got rolling. It, it looked like on uh, on Saturday against Christopher Newport and, and found that confidence pretty quickly. And they, they were able to tie the game. And Pat, you pointed this out. Uh, tied the game with a 37-yard field goal in regulation and then ended up winning it in double overtime. And, and Pat, you were saying, you know, sometimes the kicking game is one of the last things that come to, to, comes together for a new program in Division Three, and to be able to hit a 37-yard clutch kick is pretty impressive. Right, because that's not, a, that's not an easy transaction when you're talking about, you know, long snapper who's long snapping in his second game at the collegiate level, basically, holder, and, uh, and a kicker has to go out and do that in front of a packed crowd, at night, at home, uh, in the uh, the biggest game in Stevenson football history, which you know is is only out of two games, but I I'm not sure that matters. It's a that's a huge game by any by any measure. Well, Pat, you know we got a chance to take a look at that stadium over the summer, and it wasn't it wasn't finished, but it, to me, uh, it had the impression of uh, of sort of almost like a a one double A stadium or like a stadium you'd see in the WIAC. I mean, it was, it was really something big, and, and to know that they they filled it up. You know, they didn't bring a lot of people to Shenandoah. I didn't know what their support was going to be like, but for their first game to have that big crowd there and uh, to be able to play well in front of that crowd, I think was, was, was huge for, uh, for Stevenson as a program. Now they got to turn that around. If I were to compare it to one of the stadiums in the WIAC, I think it's one of the ones you've been in at uh, Wisconsin Stout. Let's stick in this part of the country, Keith, uh, both Gallaudet and Catholic. Uh, Gallaudet's had two thrillers. Uh, frankly, so is Catholic. They've, uh, Come back from double digits down in the fourth quarter both times. Yeah, and and there I'm starting to feel guilty because I, I live not too far from from both of those campuses, and uh, those are games. Again, you know, I try to get to any game you can get to, but you also think you want to see one that's going to be competitive. And, and these guys, uh, both the Cardinals and the Bison, are competitive in the first couple weeks now. And and now I got to look closely at that schedule and see who's coming into town, and uh, and and you know follow those teams a little more closely. Well, I know we have Guru Bowl coming up uh, sometime in mid-October, I believe, under the lights at Catholic. Uh, I, I graduated from Catholic, and Keith graduated from Randolph-Macon. Uh, elsewhere, uh, shoot, how about uh, Merchant Marine against Coast Guard? That's a game that you got to see last year, and I got to see, uh, I think, at some point during the course of my, uh, of my career. Now I don't even remember, but that's, a, that's always been an interesting rivalry, and it ended in an interesting way. Well, yeah, you know, it's it, there's so much the pomp and circumstance is a big deal between the two uh, Marine academies, and um, that game's going to be a, a big atmosphere regardless of how the game goes. That, that's one of those ones, you know, if if you if you go to a school or you follow a school that doesn't have maybe that rivalry game, think of it like homecoming. You know, there, there's big crowd, 
it's a, it's an event regardless of how the game goes. And sometimes the game's a blowout, you know, and, and you say, well, at least I had a good time at the tailgate or what have you. That That's the kind of atmosphere it, it is when, when, you know, Kings Point and Coast Guard get together. But last year and now this year, play, play great games, exciting games. Kings Point, Kings Point um, or, or Merchant Marine uh, won on a 40-yard touchdown pass uh, th- this year. So, I mean, uh, that that further justifies the the Secretary's Cup game as you know, moving up that ladder as far as being one of the great rivalries running right now in Division Three. I heard it referred to as the Little Army Navy game, and, it, and it's hard to uh, it's hard to argue with that. Uh, a nice little West Coast rivalry that they've played three times in the past uh, fifty four weeks or so: Linfield against Cal Lutheran this past week. And the big big question I think for Linfield was where they're going to be able to um, a they had to replace a quarterback in. in uh, and then they also had their superstar last year really was on defense, defensive end uh, Eric Hedin. I hope I'm saying his last name right. Um, yes. Yeah. So so they they really replacing their two biggest stars from from last season. And where you know where they're going to be able to uh, to turn around and, and duplicate the success they had against Cal Lutheran in the playoffs. And they were able to do it. And I believe they did it. Um, by running the ball pretty well. Yeah, Josh Hill, twenty-four carries for one hundred and sixty-four yards. Mickey Inns in his first start at quarterback. I just looking for the numbers. I'd have to say he struggled nine of twenty-four passing for one hundred and twenty-two yards through a pair of interceptions. Um, but yeah, I've, it's been a while since uh, you think about Linfield consistently getting it done on the ground. And and yeah, you're right. That's that's really not been the style that we've known them for. But when a team can can be multi-dimensional, you know, it makes them certainly tougher to stop. And and as we've seen uh, with, with Linfield in the Northwest Conference, you know, they're going to need to 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 uh, be good on both sides of the ball to, to win in that conference. Linfield with uh, short scoring drives, a, a 25-yard touchdown drive in the second quarter, 24-yard touchdown drive in the third quarter. And yeah, Linfield has a uh, obviously a, a bunch of games uh, left to go and four more wins before they can uh, add another year onto their uh, record streak of consecutive winning seasons. How about Delaware Valley in the first two weeks, Keith? Um, at home, basically surviving against Muhlenberg and then going to Washington and Jefferson and taking them down by a point as well. Well, the big story with them was replacing 10 starters on offense, which is, you know, you almost never see that. And that's almost like Stevenson, their first year program. Um, everybody on offense is new, but of course they're not in their first year. They've, they've all been in the program, but to, to, to have that kind of polish, to be able to win two, two clutch finishes, to beat Muhlenberg 10-9, and then to, uh, to, be, to go to Washington and Jefferson and, uh, and pull out a one-point victory. You know, with all those new starters, that's really impressive. And I think that, that bodes pretty well for Delaware Valley uh, with, in, in the next eight games here when they start to get into the meat of the, uh, the max schedule. Delaware Valley against Lebanon Valley this week. Uh, other games coming up, uh, McMurray at Mary Harden Baylor. <laughs> We got 40-some minutes into the podcast. Congratulations to McMurray for beating Texas San Antonio. The first win by a D3 school against a D1 scholarship school since Wisconsin Lacrosse did it against South Dakota State in 2006. Uh, Wheaton at Platteville, we talked about a little bit. Hardin-Simmons is at Mississippi College this week. Kane at Cortland State. Pack Lutheran at Cal Lutheran. Wittenberg at WashU. Salisbury at Christopher Newport. And then, Keith, uh, quickly, memories of Lycoming Widener because that game's coming up this week, too. Yeah, well, we, we did that game back in the early 2000s, Pat. We saw him play a 50-49 to 49 game. We've seen him play uh, games where the scoring has been uh, harder harder to come by. That's one of those rivalries that, you know, we, we sometimes mention. You mentioned uh, Randolph-Macon and, and Catholic. Even though it's not a um, 
traditional rivalry or, or a great uh, historical rivalry, they always seem to play a great game when uh, when when Lacom and Wider get together. And other stuff we have coming up this week, uh, of course, um, the uh, the D3 reports, thanks to those of you who filed them. We have a, uh, we have a few of them that we will uh, bring out for you on uh, Monday afternoon. Uh, uh, over the weekend, I went to Luther and I, I sat down with uh, Chris Norton, the, uh, the, the Luther player who got uh, paralyzed in a game last October. Uh, he was back on the sidelines this weekend, and we, uh, it was kind of an emotional pregame ceremony, and I have a, a video feature from that, which will uh, run out on Monday night. Uh, we're taking your nominations for Play of the Week, so send us your videos, and then around the region, around the nation, and that is uh, the week that will be here on D3Football.com. So for Keith McMillan, I'm Pat Coleman, and uh, thanks for tuning in to the Around the Nation podcast.